from the Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is re-recording mixer and sound editor Leslie Gaston Bird. First of all, do you have a Spotify account? And more to the point, has your Spotify account been hacked? There's a lot of that going around these days. I don't mean a data breach where all your data is stolen. No, this is something else. This is your account being taken over by someone else. Now, you know this is happening if you log in and suddenly there's a lot of music that you don't recognize. There's somebody else that's using it. The reason why it's happening is you may have used your Facebook ID or maybe you reused the password when you signed up. And this is frequently the reason that most people get their accounts taken over or hacked. Now, Spotify actually monitors this. And in a few cases, they will reset your password due to any suspicious activity. But that's not usually the case. This is something that's known as credential stuffing attack. And that's the real description of it. It's basically taking your email address and password combination or else just your email address and kind of figuring out what your password is through what you used before. Believe it or not, a lot of this stuff can be bought on the dark web. And you might think, why would somebody want to go to that extent? Because you can get a Spotify account for free, and it's only 10 bucks a month, so it's not like there's a huge amount being stolen. But it's not for that. It's to skew stream counts. There are some artists or artist managers, maybe even record labels, that are creating fictitious Spotify accounts. And then they're boosting up the stream counts of their artist or of that artist by listening to a song or a number of songs over and over and over throughout the day. Now, Spotify pretty much got wise to this. So now the alternative is to take over an active account and do it. So that's why, in fact, your account may be accessing an artist that you could care less about. And if you see this activity, it means that you've been hacked. So Spotify does not support two-factor identification, which would probably get rid of this completely. Two-factor identification, meaning you try to sign in, and then it either sends you a new password or sends you a code via text or via email. That's fairly secure. Spotify doesn't do that, but you can combat this. The first thing is change your password to something very unique that you don't use anywhere else. Then open your account and you can choose log out everywhere. And when you do that, it will log out everybody that's on your account. And then you log back in with a new password and don't use it anywhere else. And you should be safe. So if you happen to see that there are songs that are showing up on your Spotify account that you don't recognize then you may have been hacked. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more.
Now, it turns out that the music gear business, both audio and musical instruments, has been living very comfortably with technology almost from the beginning, unlike many other industries. As a matter of fact, what we find in the music industry, the music gear industry, is that tech influences it, yet it doesn't replace it. Now, just think back to some of these examples here. Way, way, way back, we had the horse and buggy, and it was replaced by the automobile. And you always hear the story about the buggy whip manufacturer and how they're out of business now because no longer needed. Well, that happened to other more recent technologies. For instance, the typewriter. That was a big business. And now it was killed by the word processor. Telephone landlines. Well, when's the last time you saw one of those? They're around, but they're few and far between because of the cell phone. How about cameras? Yes, again, they're around, but that whole industry has been decimated by the camera in your phone. But it's not the same when it comes to the musical gear business. For instance, last year, just in the United States, there were more than one million violins and wind instruments that were purchased. And yet this is a century old or more design. Digital keyboards didn't replace the piano. And so many people thought that that might happen. Yet a piano lives very comfortably side by side with a digital keyboard. The drum machine didn't replace the drummer, as everybody thought would happen. Yes, they live very nicely side by side, and maybe in the top 10, there are very few drummers, but what we find is when those artists actually go out, many of them take a live drummer with them. Digital consoles have pretty much displaced analog consoles, and this is right down to the club level. That being said, the need to move faders to balance things out, that's still there. So it doesn't matter about the technology under the hood because the same process still exists. Today, CNC manufacturing has made the building of guitars so much better and so much more precise than it's ever been. And you would think because these guitars come out and they're so good that that would displace guitar builders, but that's not the case. There are more hand-built instruments than ever before, according to Music Sales Magazine. So technology adds to the tools and shapes their use, but doesn't replace them when it comes to the music industry. This is one of the great things about the business, and even though you find a lot of the more classic engineers and producers and musicians that have been around, this is something that's so unique to our business, and it's what keeps it healthy, and it's what keeps us coming back year after year. So let's celebrate technology along with the past as they live together as we go forward. My guest today is Leslie Gaston-Bird, who's a post-production engineer, a governor at large for the Audio Engineering Society, and a former associate professor of recording arts at the University of Colorado, Denver. Leslie formerly worked at National Public Radio headquarters in Washington, D.C., where she worked on shows like Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Talk of the Nation, and Performance Today. Then, she moved to Colorado Public Radio, where she earned the Radio and Television Digital News Association's Edward R. Murrow Award for Large Market Documentary. It was in Denver where she started a career in post-production at Postmodern Company, restoring soundtracks for classic Sony Columbia Films, dating back as early as the 1930s. In 2011, she was granted a Fulbright Award to research Blu-ray audio at the University of York in York, England, 
which led to ongoing research with Dolby Lab. She's also the author of the book, Women in Audio. During the interview, we spoke about working at NPR in the days of tape, cleaning up movie soundtracks, tracking down women audio pioneers to interview, and much more. I spoke with Leslie via Skype from her studio in England. Tell me how you got started in the business. Oh, sure. Um, I actually got my undergrad degree at Indiana University, and it was 1989, I think I got my degree. And at that time, there weren't any four-year degrees in audio, not in, not in Indiana. They weren't that popular. So I got an associate's degree in audio technology, and my four-year degree is actually in telecommunications. And then uh, I went to work for National Public Radio. Interesting. Okay, tell me about the NPR experience, because I'm curious if the engineering is any different than what you experienced afterwards. Uh, Yeah, totally different. So I started at National Public Radio in 1991, and my title was Broadcast Recording Technician. And uh, my first gig was taking in phone feeds from all over the world. And we had these little, um, I'm trying to remember if they were, I mean, Comrex was one of the codecs that we used, but they were, you know, plain old television POTS receivers that we would plug in and, uh, you know, record our our reporters to real tape. So quarter inch tape um, on these old MCI machines. It was fascinating, and it was very, you know, as you can imagine, uh, hectic, um, live radio broadcast. So every morning we would do morning edition, and every evening was all things considered. And, yeah, it was it was different back then because editors would edit, engineers would record, and, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of hat sharing like there is today. Yeah, I guess there's fewer people, right? So because of that, everybody has more jobs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like that everywhere. Yes, yes. So, yeah, I really appreciated my time there. And, um, you know, NPR has yielded a lot of great alumni. Jim Anderson, Paul Blakemore, uh, myself, of course, uh, Skip Peasy. All of these are names. And we weren't necessarily there at the same time, but um, we were there uh, at different times. Surya Muhammad, Kirill Owen. Manoli Weatherall, and these are um, just some people who went to work um, for other organizations who, you know, kept their careers in audio. How long were you at NPR? Uh, at the time, it seemed like forever, but it was just four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just four years. And then where did you go? Um, from there, I kind of got tired of the fast-paced Washington, D.C., style and things were kind of starting to change at NPR. You know, I could sort of see the writing on the wall in terms of the digital audio technology that was coming out. And, you know, the, the engineers were getting restless and talking about joining unions and uh, they eventually joined NABET. But I decided to move to Colorado. So I became the audio systems manager at Colorado Public Radio in 1995. And so I was the only uh, recording engineer on staff. Um, There's a chief, en- it was just really two engineers, the chief engineer, the RF guy, and myself. And so I would um, go out on location with the reporters. Um, at that time, I had a portable DAT recorder. And um, I worked on a workstation called the Arrakis. And by 1998, I got tired of that. And I said, can we just get Pro Tools? <laughs> <laughs> so 
We got the, um, I think it was version four in 1998 um, was the first version we started with at uh, College of Public Radio. And then uh, my role evolved into managing the state's, um, it was a statewide network. We had uh, locations in Grand Junction and uh, Vail Pueblo. And what I did was um, started programming the automation that would fire the local spots in each one of those. So, you know, again, I saw my role changing. Somewhere along the line, I read that you got into symphonic recording. Yeah, I did. Um, that was really fun. It was during, uh, let's see, I think it was 1998. I got a email, an email from Maria Williamson, who was the, um, I think her title was director um, at the time. Now, of course, the orchestra was conducted by Marin Alsop. But Maria um, reached out to me in her role and just said, um, you know, we're trying to get our broadcasts, um, our performances to be broadcast on national public radio. And I heard you worked at NPR. Um, and indeed I did. I was uh, one of the engineers for performance today who rotated in and out of that show. And she said, well, we just, we want to sound better. We don't know how to do it. So I went and um, made some recommendations and, um, they let me buy some nice Sheps microphones and some MKH microphones from Sennheiser. And we set those up and got their recordings up to par, and they started um, getting aired on Performance Today. So that was from 1998 to 2002. I recorded the Colorado Symphony. Wow, very cool. That's always fun. Yeah, really. It was fun. How did you get into post? Oh, well, it's it's sort of like I'm starting to hear myself, and it, it seems like the industry keeps driving these career changes. So... I got into post because, you know, I think in the back of my mind, I really did, you know, always wanted to work with video and I knew it was going to be super competitive and I was not in Los Angeles. You know, I didn't go to LA to seek, you know, like a Hollywood post career, but there was, there were a couple of uh, post houses in Denver. And so I started, you know, trying to get into them and it was really difficult. It was, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a radio guy <laughs> as it were. And you know, I'd never worked with picture before, um, but I finally got a break at Postmodern Company. A woman named Patsy Butterfield brought me in there and saw my potential. And so um, I worked with um, Postmodern Company starting in 2002. At first, we had done some restoration of some old magnetic film soundtracks from Sony Columbia Pictures. And they would come in really not only on on magnetic but um there were optical tracks as well um some sometimes even one inch videotape that we would restore using cedar and this is when cedar was four rack spaces tall big green <laughs> computer before isotope so um a lot of the clicks and pops that we took out had to be done manually because you know um you could still hear artifacts it, because of the processing, you know, the noise reduction. So our job was to make sure that you couldn't hear any artifacts and that, you know, these old films that were being re-released on DVD sounded good. So that's how I got my start in post-production. How long did it take to do a film? You know what? I remember it took me two, it took me 20 minutes to get through two minutes of a track. And we had to do the dialogue track, and then we had to do the music track, and then we had to do the effects track. So depending on how long the movie was, it would take, you know, probably a good five days to get through a DME, as they're called, to get through those stems. 
And then we had to do the English composite. And then we had to do the m &E, which is music and effects. So, yeah, I think it would take us two weeks to turn around a film for Sony. Yeah. You were doing this all in Pro Tools then? Yeah, that was all Pro Tools with um, Cedar uh, processing and some EQ, you know, mm -hmm. um, some uh, very judiciously applied EQ in sections. Is that how you delivered it? Oh, man, we delivered it on DA88. This ah. was between 2002 and 2005, so DA88, and then we would make a DVD backup. So I'm sure John Crivet and the, and the folks at the Archiving and Preservation Conference with AES would love, <laughs> would love those stories. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember those days myself. Mm. I still have two DA88s, unfortunately. Oh, man, well, you know, I have some tapes to <laughs> I need to... <laughs> <laughs> grab some stuff off of so we'll talk we'll talk yeah the the thing about it is i don't think i've plugged them in in at least 10 years so god knows if they still work yeah i mean and that's the thing you know when we would sometimes uh sony would send tapes back to us that would have a dropout and we would have to punch in mm. and if we couldn't punch in we would have to restripe a new tape with time code and do it all over oh god oh Remember? Oh. Yeah, yeah. That was brutal, all that stuff, I remember. I was just thinking the other day, I was doing a DVD for, it was a DVD audio disc, and it was a demonstration disc for CES. Mm. And it was one of the first 5.1 demo discs. So I mixed it and then went to mastering, and my favorite mastering engineer at the time says, well, I can't do this digitally. I don't have anything. Wow, yeah. So what we did is I got DA88s and the Mackie Digital Console, you know, one of those first ones, and I can remember that we had to run the whole thing down top to bottom, and somewhere in the middle there was a, a crack that happened, and he was oh. just pushing it too hard, and I remember being three in the morning, we both looked at each other thinking, oh, we have to do this again. Do it one more time. Oh, yep. and, and those were the days. I'm very pleased that they're gone, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's see. So 2005, six is when I started teaching at CU Denver, uh, University of Colorado, Denver. And we were very excited. I mean, we had a class in surround sound. I brought in um, Donald Fagan's Morph the Cat, uh, Morph the Cat, which was mastered by uh, Darcy Proper. Mm -hmm. And uh won a grammy i think it was the first i don't know you might I, I have to go on the web or whatever and look to see but it was one of the first in the surround sound category and i just and i i remember to this day you know i would play this for for the students in my class and they were psyched about it. it's like wow you can put music behind you what you know it's really cool now that being said immersive audio was taken over from that which i'm a very big fan of, of atmos yeah Speaking of things behind you, there was a demo at the last AES show that was the most hard immersive audio demo I've ever heard. It was done by a DJ who I don't think understood what was supposed to happen. He had like the kick drum in the back and, and the snare drum coming out of the front and you know, it was just all disjointed and disconnected. Yeah, I mean, there's there's potential for the medium, you know, just to unwrap your unwrap your expectations and think out of the box, but the best sort of Atmos recording I heard was uh, Tom Sawyer by Rush. And that was playing in the uh, Dolby booth. No, it was the Genelec booth at one of the AES conventions. You know, and with that first synth 
comes in with the drums. That is, oh man, that that's good stuff. Good ear candy. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so you're doing post now, and you're in the UK. How did you make the transition to get over there? <laughs> yeah, you know, life is funny. Um, so I back in 2009, I married a very nice man named Andy, um, and he's British. And um, we met around the time of a uh, AES conference, of course. Um, so we got married, and we were trying to figure out now which which country are we going to live in. So we we picked Colorado because I was assistant professor at the time, and I was hoping to get tenure. So um, on my way to tenure, I had two children, and we ended up staying in Colorado um, for about ten years. Um, was that about right? A little less than ten years. Um, so we moved to the UK, we sort of made a family decision. It's like, okay, what's a good age, you know, where our kids will be transitioning kind of naturally. So we came out here, um, sort of based on their ages and we've been here ever since. And you've been doing post ever since. Right. So I've, I've still been doing freelance stuff and, um, my clients for the most part have still been based in the United States. The two most recent, let's see. Okay. I've had three recent films all Colorado productions. And then I had a film essay that I did here for a director, which was um, a film essay about cinematographer Bradford Young. So I'm slowly trying to build my UK clientele, um, but I'm keeping busy. And you're just working on film then, not television or anything? Uh, These are, let's see. So I worked on um, Leap of Faith, which ran the festival circuit. And Leap of Faith was a documentary on William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist. Mm, So um, that was at at the Biennale de Venezia. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. So the Venice Film Festival, very prestigious, Biennale. And then the uh, BFI. I play the British Film Institute, and then it uh, premiered at Sundance just uh, last week, I think it was. And that was a pretty cool um, festival run. Uh, and then, let's see, uh, A Feral World is uh, directed by David Lieban at the University of Colorado, and that was a four-year project. It's a feature film, and um, he's going to announce plans for its premiere later this year. Um, and that was cool to uh, work, um, I did sound and some music composition for that too, and it's about a young boy who comes of age in a post-apocalyptic world, and uh, we actually get to see the director's son plays the main character, and we get to see him age, I think he started when he was nine or ten, and we watch him age to 11, 12, 13, I think he might have been 12 when they shot the last one, so it's pretty cool watching him uh, grow. Tell me about your book. Okay, so this book is called Women in Audio. And it has been life-changing and eye-opening and um, transformational. And I wrote it, you know, the uh, sort of for professors, the saying is publish or perish. And so I pitched the book when I was still working at CU Denver um, and but I ended up resigning, but I you know I still had this um, book deal, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to approach this like a research paper, and I'm going to do some research on women in audio, and so I you know did the scholarly thing and went on a bunch of web pages and scholarly pages and libraries and and found you know some pretty obscure names that you may not have heard of, 
but one, it was one instance that um, sort of showed me that this was not going to be a research paper. And the woman, the first woman I interviewed was named Joan Lowe. And she had worked on some feminist albums in the 1970s, an um, album called The Changer and the Changed. And so I, her email was out there um, just on the Internet. And so I reached out to her and just said, you know, I'd like to speak to you. And she emailed me back. She says, I'm 90 years old. <laughs> I think it'd be better if we do an email because I'm not going to be able to hear on the phone very well. So um, she sent me this wonderful wonderful email back. I included the entirety of it in the book. And um, Bobby, I'm sad to say, she passed away about four months after she sent me that email. Uh. And I thought to myself, you know, what's happening here is more than a research paper. It's living history. You know, um, there are engineers among us today who are women who can tell us these amazing things from the 80s, these amazing things from the 70s. And so I, <laughs> I went from a research paper, and I know the publisher, you know, somewhere around April, she was saying, so, you said you'd be done with the book in May. You ready? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not. I've got to interview so many people. So I, I just went on a flurry and just started reaching out to as many women as I can, realizing that these stories are, you know, they're going to slip through our fingers if we don't get them. Um, and another woman I reached out to in France, uh, her name was Elizabeth Luchin. Uh, it developed the LC concept sound system, which uh, predated a digital theater system. So this was a uh, film sound format, which was played back on a compact disc whose time code was printed on the film. Doesn't that sound familiar? So um, if you go to your IMDb and you look up the LC concept sound system or just do a, a regular Google search, the L in LC stands for Lucan, which was uh, Elizabeth's last name, and the C was for Chedeville, which was Pascal Chedeville, um, was his last name. And there were big films released on this. It was um, uh, Fatal Attraction, um, Cyrano de Bergerac. I mean, these were major titles. Um, that were released in this format. So being able to talk to her, I mean, all of these, all these things. And then, of course, being able to talk to Terry Winston of Women's Sound Mission, Carrie Keys from, excuse me, Carrie Kies from Sound Girls. These were really important conversations to have. I'm so happy that they made it in the book. Yeah, I had Terry on my podcast. She's a lovely person. It was a great interview. I really enjoyed speaking with her. How many women did you interview? So a book profiles almost 100 women, and I personally interviewed about 70. Okay. Did you find that there was an approach that they took that was different from what a man might take? You mean in terms of finding a career, in terms of mixing, in terms of what? Well, both, actually. You know, everybody had a different story. And I think, you know, in the introduction of the book, I try to sum it up for everybody. Like, what are the commonalities between all of these women? And the commonalities are curiosity and tenacity and, you know, passion for the art of recording. And no, I don't think there are things that women do differently. Um, a few women, like trying to remember, there was an electronic musician, and I don't want to attribute it to the wrong person. It might have been Suzanne Tiani who said, you know, women here, or it could have been Lori Spiegel. I have to, I have to go back. 
But say, you know, women hear higher frequencies. And so in the realm of electronic music, perhaps they are manipulating sounds differently just based on those extra goodies that they're getting at the, at the high end, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, there, were, um, uh, there were a couple of engineers who said to me, women bring a different dynamic to any group because they are more uh, maybe diplomatic in their approach or maybe more nurturing in their approach and always, you know, trying to find common ground in, in different ways than men would, maybe. And I don't want to make any sweeping statements because I know that people email me and say, you know, that's a stereotypical thing to say that women are nurturing. Well, you know, some women are nurturing and some are abrasive. And, you know, so every every woman brings something uh, different, I think, to the group, to the team, to the art form. And I, you know, I don't think there is like this magic essence of woman, that, <laughs> you know, that that appears on a project just because a woman is involved. It's really up to the person. You know, you mentioned about doing these interviews and capturing history, and I've always felt the same. My books are, most of them anyway, are about a third filled with interviews. Mm, Yeah. And what I discovered in my very first one was that, uh, you know, I just talked to all these mixers. It was a mixing engineer's handbook, so I talked to 25 mixers. and. Originally, it was just so I could get background and so I could understand better what they were doing. And then I realized what they're saying is so interesting. I have to include this because it's really great stuff. Yeah. And then it dawned on me afterwards that, well, wait a second, I am capturing history here. And there's a lot of stuff that might kind of just go into the ether, you know, unless it's written down somewhere. So that became my next mission to make sure that that stuff was captured. So I'm glad you did that and you use that approach because it's vital. It really is. Absolutely. And I feel it in my bones. I feel it as each woman gave me her story and told me her story. I absolutely felt the the gravity of, you know, um, what I'm doing with this book. So to what end did you write this book? (laughs) Well, I think the first end was this, this sort of feeling of publisher parish, like I need to write a book. Um, and I think the the other thing was I, at the time, was getting swept up in. I don't know if that's the right, if that's what necessarily what I, what I wanted to say. But in about 2016, 17, and 18, there was a surge in sort of women's networking. And I saw that on Facebook. And as my network was expanding, I was seeing that these networks were expanding. And I'm not the only one who noticed it. Um, there's a woman here named Liz Dobson who documented the emergence of at least 60 women-focused uh, organizations that deal with music and technology. So there's definitely there was definitely a trend emerging. And you know, as I pitched this book to Focal Press, they you know they were asking, well, has this done before? And uh, has this been done before? And what I saw was, no, there hasn't been a book on women in audio technology. There was a book, uh, Pink Noises, uh, which was great. I, I definitely recommend it to your listeners. And Pink Noises was about women in electronic music. But there wasn't anything on audio engineers um, that was focused on women. So uh, there's definitely an opportunity there. And as I was writing it, you know, as, as I sort of mentioned, it, it became clear that women need this. And when I say 
when I say that, I think um, your listeners, whether they be men or women, um, may or may not be plugged into the same networks I am. But what I'm seeing in my social networks is that women want to see role models and women want mentoring and women want this networking. And, you know, a lot of times women who are working in isolation, whether they're in Michigan or Canada or Venezuela or Nigeria, you know, want these networks that they can connect to. And so many of the women, you know, that I've been talking to before and after the book say, you know, thank you. Thank you for writing this. It's good to see other women who are in the same boat as me. You know, when you're the only woman on a crew, you feel a little bit isolated. But when you see this book of, you know, 70 to 100 women who are are doing the same work as you under in the same circumstances and you hear their stories, um, you feel more connected. And so that became the, the mission and the purpose of the book. Is there a follow-up in mind? Absolutely. So there's some pe- there's a lot of women that I didn't get to interview that I gotta. I gotta, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I gotta interview Missy Elliott. I gotta. You know, the producers, um, some of the women in Foley. I didn't touch on Foley artists as much as I would have liked to. So there's definitely another volume coming. Very cool. And I think you'll find the next one will go faster. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> after this after this last one and getting to the finish line, I'm like, I know I know what not to do next time. So <laughs> I feel like I'm ready for it. I always tell first time writers that a lot of brain cells die, you know, in the process. And at the end you, you say, I'm never gonna do that again. <laughs> and then eventually you kind of soften on it and say, Oh yeah, okay, I think I can do it better next time. That's generally the way it works. It doesn't sound like that's working that way for you because you seem to have a pretty smooth experience. No, it wasn't smooth at all. No, it was, um, I had a full body headache by the time I was <laughs> crossing the finish line. And yeah, no, it, and it, it's funny. I think a lot of people who see a book just think that you snapped your fingers and this, this thing appeared and you know, it's no, it, it was a, it was a process. And, um, but I'm, I'm glad I went through the process. It wasn't easy, but I'm glad, <laughs> glad I did it. Well, I have to pick up a copy and read it. Unfortunately, I, I have not before I talked to you and I wish I would have, but I will. Last question, Leslie, what's the best piece of business advice that either you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Are you talking about as a freelancer or as a person working for a larger company or just either one best piece of business advice. Wow. Networking is the most important thing. You know, if you, you got to get out there and meet people, you got to see what's going on. I love conferences and conventions. I love, you know, playing with new gear, but yeah, you've got to, you've got to shake hands and, and hang out with people a lot. I think that's the best piece of advice I can give. You can find out more about Leslie on the Soundlister, Women in Sound, LinkedIn, and IMDB websites. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. 
at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com. You'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh,